Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze and interviews straight from the heart of quarantine. This is Aaron. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. Um, you can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com. It's a brand spanking new website. Go there, sign up for our email. Do it. You can also find us every Monday morning at bff.fm from 6 to 6.30. Boy, boing. Well, we got another special episode for you. Uh, we have Rafael Casal. What, what do they call each other? Um, oh, I'm always going to freak Platonic it. Platonic life mates. No. Platonic soul life. mates. <laughs> Platonic life partners. Uh, to Davi Diggs. Um, we invited him on because we had David on. And uh, that's what the gift of the pandemic has given us. So... Um, Please enjoy our interview. It's not even an interview. It's really like a conversation with Raphael, uh, born and raised in the Bay. And we'll see you on the other side. Hey, Rafa, okay. I wanted to tell okay. you. So <laughs> my my cocktail has a backstory. Okay. When we, when we interviewed David, he was drinking uh, scotch and coconut water. So I was so like, accurate. I was like that that has to be tried. So now it's like my go to. It's so good. So, that's my, yeah, so I nice. call it I call it the Diggs Delight. I don't know, maybe <laughs> find a find a better name for it, but it's so good. I mean, that's pretty good. The alliteration is there, you know. <laughs> I try I try a little some. She tries. Yeah, yeah. Char, I'm calling it the Diggs Delight. Diggs Delight. Okay, I'm having one as well because that's my new thing. Nice. I'm telling I'm you, not. it revolutionized because I'll normally drink, you know, just neat, but I don't, I don't like mixers. But coconut water is perfect, and it helps with the over the next day. <laughs> Hydration. I guess. I guess. <laughs> it sounds like there's a way to get you more fucked up faster. <laughs> I agree. No, the coconut water, it's it's healthy. That's for later. <laughs> that's like that's like taking aspirin like while you give yourself like a, a headache. Like, <laughs> they it's later. Each out. They cancel each no. other out. Okay, we can move on. <laughs> We can agree to disagree. This is already. I, I know Diggs logic when I hear it. <laughs> he got you, man. He got you with the charm. <laughs> I'm just doing straight, straight whiskey. Well, with with rock stuff. Raphael Cazal, thank you so much for being on uh, a basic bitch with us. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Are you scared? I asked Davi the same thing when he started with us. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you might have heard the show then. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. Okay. So um, back in the day, uh, we would have guests on to talk about their origin story and just get to know them. So you know, I feel like we've we've had you guys on the show before and we've interacted, but we don't really know you. So if you don't mind, kind of kind of digging in and talking to us about you know, growing up in Berkeley and Oakland and, and your experiences starting there. And then we'll keep going. And then we'll keep digging. <laughs> so how many years long is this show? So it'll be about, a, this is going to be a 10 year process. So got it, got it. <laughs> we can make it a four part series. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have a particular subject, like subcategory we want to focus on? <laughs> so broad. Uh, well, growing up in the East Bay. I mean, we're all, we're all from here, so it'd be nice to hear your experiences. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so many different entry points to that. It's like, what part of that, right? Like, Let's talk about your parents. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was asking about. I'm like, there you go. Just shoot for the thing. Like, <laughs> if I stumble upon it, like, tell me about your mom. Like, tell right. me about your parents. <laughs> My parents are, are, are wonderful. I, have, I, I lucked out. I got great parents. Um, so, you know, me, I'm, I, I'm the youngest sibling. I have an older a sister, two years older, Gabriela. And um, uh, we were both born in the house that my parents still live in, in, in Berkeley, in West Berkeley. Um, and, uh, and so I had a very, like, my mother worked in Oakland and, and a lot of our sort of family and friends are somewhere between Oakland and Richmond. And so that path of the East Bay was the whole, was my whole upbringing, right? It was like somewhere between like deep East Oakland and, and Richmond. Um, but Berkeley is its own, like the first part of life, so much of it was based in, in Berkeley. So 
like sometimes if I run down my schools, I feel like I can like give you a sense of what my life was like. It was like preschool, <laughs> Centro Ida, <laughs> the Ooh. Chinese by the Chinese by cultural program at Jefferson Elementary. Oh, <laughs> wow. Malcolm X, <laughs> Thousand Oaks Bilingual School, Martin Luther King Middle School, Berkeley High. <laughs> like that. <laughs> that's what being like a, a East Bay kid is if you in Berkeley. Like that you're mm-hmm. you're like the politics are in the names of the places and in the ways that they're built, right? Mm-hmm. So, so much of that has shaped my, my upbringing. And Berkeley is also a weird hub city where like a lot of people from the town and from Richmond and Albany and El Cerrito and San Leandro send all their kids to school there. I'm like back in the 90s or, you know, 80s and 90s, it was super easy to do that. You can't do that shit now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the East Bay was this really particular sort of melting pot of people I think my parents did that really, really intentionally because they wanted us to kind of be in this, you know, as close to the United States gets to having like any kind of a, not a utopia, but like a true cross, like, you know, cross-cultural experience for kids. And I can't think of anywhere like outside of, I mean, we say the Bay Area, but like really like 80s and 90s, like specifically Berkeley was like the closest the country has gotten to some shit like that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's came and went. I think that's over for Berkeley, and I think before that didn't exist. So it does feel like Camelot in this weird way, the mm-hmm. way that our parents raised us, like little hippie kids, you know? Didn't have a lot of money when we were really young, but like our parents did, we didn't really know. You know, everybody was kind of on that level, you know? Now I look back at pictures when, you guys ever look back at pictures when you were kids, and I'm like, what the fuck are we wearing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding? What? Last year, I'll look at pictures. Yeah. <laughs> Like what? 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 Free box, secondhand ass T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but but you know we like me and my sister had a really like joyful childhood, and my parents grew up like super 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 poor. Mm. You know, and so to them they're like y'all didn't grow up poor. And then me and my sister could like pull up the aside and be like, you was come poor, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's but it's it's all relative, right? Mm-hmm. So they were working super, super hard to make it never feel that way. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, in growing up with them, we were also watching my parents become middle class, which is like a weird, you know, like I remember like all the years of not feeling that way at all. And my dad's a carpenter. He's like working on rich people's houses and flipping that money to come home and ask his friends to help work on our house. Mm-hmm. And my mom, you know, going from doing mostly, you know, all nonprofit work to like suddenly when I'm 15, 16, starting to like make a little bit of money, be like, oh, cool. okay, so this is what that looks like when a, when a family just like starts to get their head above water for the first time. And watching that sort of transition was super, super interesting to watch like our family navigate. What, what was it? What were those changes that, that were happening? You got a nicer car or you got to shop <laughs> somewhere different. I remember the first time I- you got to go to the mall. Yeah, we didn't shop at like, Target for the first time. It's like, oh, there's a mall, oh. yeah. Let's, let's keep it super 100. We still shot the target. Uh, <laughs> Same. <laughs> we, we still like, uh, yeah, no, it was ne- like, you still never got to go to the mall. <laughs> or, if, or if I did, it was like some money that I hustled on my own doing, during the, you know, doing some shit I shouldn't have been doing. No, like I remember, like, you know how Target is like Target now and motherfuckers are juiced to go to Target. Like our childhood Target was like, you didn't want to get seen at Target. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, it was you know, embarrassing. You went, you went, girl, you went uh, clothes shopping once a year for a little couple things, and that had to last you the whole year, you know. And it, but there wasn't any like, you know, na- I've seen sometimes people glorify like sort of not being super super well off. Like there was nothing sort of wasn't <laughs> really to glorify about that, but that was just kind of where we where we were, and we still like I, don't, I still think our family's never bought a new car. And we still have like, there's like poor mentalities pervasive. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like my, my mother is like, me watching the shift of my mother was more about um, her getting into like wine and cheese. <laughs> you know, like, That's next level, like, yeah. Like, 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 <laughs> the taste changed, you know what I'm saying? Like we still had the, but you know, my pops had two low riders and, a, and an old classic car out in front of the house for a long, long time. And I remember we had like a busted like, Plymouth Voyager van <laughs> and like you know and then suddenly it was like oh we have used Hondas now oh. <laughs> that's where we at 
Mm-hmm. We got that four door, you know, we got that four door accord, accord now. We out here, you know, and you, you just, you just watch what it means to, to feel like you're sort of moving up. And it took me a while to realize, oh, my mother is, my mother and my pops are doing the best this bloodline's done. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. this is, that this this is it. This is how far we've gotten in life. Is whatever this is right here. And did you feel like you're, you, that that's humbling? Did you feel like your social status changed with your friends when that started happening? No, I mean I think it was different for me and my sister. Right, like my sister, uh, I think younger. A lot of her friends were hills. Like you know, the East Bay is the flats and the hills, right? Like if you want to cut cut no no other way of class, you can cut it that way. You either down here or you up there. Mm-hmm. We were down here. And a lot of her friends were up there. And, I, you know, you'd have to ask her about why sort of that her, her sense of self played out in that way or her, her friend group, maybe it was interest, maybe it was, who knows, maybe she wanted to live up there. A lot of people in the flats did. I think for me, I, I, we were really at this interesting part of, of sort of the border of West and, and like Northwest Berkeley, where if you went this way, you had all the, the, the poorer families and you went this way. And after about four or five blocks, we started getting into the people that had a little bit of nicer shit. And I think for me, it was like, I always gravitated toward the kids like right in my neighborhood, played basketball, baseball, little league and all that stuff around me. Um, so I went this way. So, you know, I was probably like the second least, you know, poor kid in the group. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. Everybody was doing, a, you know, was doing a lot where, I mean, you know, that's that's systemically, you know, Mexican and black families in the East Bay, just barely, you know, at that time, barely, you know, getting a foot in the door, harder to climb that economic ladder for sure. And so I think, you know, we had friends who were like, who had like nice houses in the hills and those were the rich friends, but we were like the doing all right friends in the, in the <laughs> yeah. you know, in the, in the flats. And then, you know, and then friends, you know, a lot of my friends' families were in section eight housing. So you get this whole spectrum of, mm-hmm. of, what, of what economics are like. And at the time when you're a kid, you think that's the breadth of economics. And then like flash forward and now, I mean, being in my thirties and being in LA, I'm like, oh, we were fighting over dumb shit. That's money. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what yeah. money looks like. This isn't money. This little middle-class shit we're fighting over here is that shit where you have one bad thing happen and you back down. It takes nothing. It's so fragile. That economic climate is so, so fragile. That, that now I have a different understanding of money and I see all that time so differently. Like those, those margins between us feel so much smaller now. And in high school, we're so, you know, we're so paramount. You're like, oh yeah, he's, do, he's the rich friend and this is the, you know, he live over here and he live over here and thought those differences really meant something. Mm. And you realize you go a little higher and you, like, you look around a little bit, you get around real, you get around real money and you go, oh no, no, we're all in the same boat. <laughs> right. I mean, I feel like it's planned that way. Like the people real high up, they want us to all fight amongst each other, each other so we don't yeah. notice that they're really the ones up there in charge. Oh, yeah. of running it's, the big, it's the big yeah. laugh they get out of watching like local people get mad at gentrifiers who like make 10,000 more a year than them. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's not who you should yeah. be mad at. They, mm-hmm. they don't own the buildings. They're renters. <laughs> mm-hmm. they're, they're opportunists like all of us are. 100%. You know I mean? like they're the they're the face of the thing and a lot of times that sort of that feels like you know another level of colonialism especially because when you go up that economic bracket it's wider and wider and wider faces in more abundance right so that cue makes sense but economically the person who's really putting those people there are the people who own these fucking companies and real estate companies yeah mm-hmm. you know and that's the actual shift but you never meet those people so yeah you're i, I agree i think it keeps us i think it keeps us shooting at each other mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get into policy later, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it just um, goes there. You're like, how's your mom? And I'm like, see this. <laughs> like, wait, 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 wait. That's for later. Um, no, but so we, we have to talk about poetry. When did that enter your life? Um, poetry was, I think I was 14 and the poetry slam was just starting to kick off at my high school. And, uh, and I saw this movie Slam, and I was writing raps already, but I'd never seen that format before. So I, I saw that movie and was like, oh, I'm going to try that, because there's a place I can go and do that. Like, there wasn't a rap club. There wasn't like a venue where we could do shows like, like there are now for some kids. Like, the, the youth uprisings of the world didn't exist right. yet. And so we just had the Slam at the high school. So I could write something, go over there, perform it. 
feel like an idiot, go back, do it again, try to be a little <laughs> bit better, you know, and kind of work out some of my shit. It also like the great thing about a poetry center for young people is it's, it's built on asking for you to be your smartest self, which like not a lot of art intuitively asks for. So that was, that was just sort of enticing, right? Because I think at that point, I was a pretty big kind of fuck up, little knucklehead kid doing, doing dumb shit all the time. That's the quote. Put that on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that will be the audiogram. <laughs> That's the audiogram right there. Here's how he, his self-esteem was low. Here's his quote. Um, uh, no, but it, you know, it, was very, it was very validating. It was excelling in a thing that, in a, in a space you know that otherwise I wasn't really excelling and um and there's nothing like a play you know finding a place for young people where like there is merit in articulating your uh frustration with your status quo and that just became very enticing uh and I was getting good at it really fast and I was getting the kind of attention that I I must have wanted as a teenager um was so there I, someone I, that I, introduced it to you oh, oh sorry yeah, my my folks made me watch that movie. I mean, we're a big indie movie family. Mm-hmm. So they were like, you need to watch this movie. You're going to love it. And I did. And then uh, my sister knew about the slam and told me about that and pushed really hard. My sister is two years older, so she was in high school with me at the same time. And she was very worried because I think she had, a, had an inkling of where this was going to end up for me if I didn't <laughs> find something I was good at. Um, so she was like, I, you know, I think you'll be really good at this and you should try it. I think the first poems I ever wrote, I showed, I brought it to her bedroom and like showed her, like left them there and walked away. And her and I weren't particularly <laughs> close at that point. Like we, we were funking hard and it only got worse from there. But we had this one little thing where she like was a safe space, space to read stuff. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then I, I think there was a few people, I mean, Rick Ayers, my high school English teacher, Chinaka Hodge, uh, this kid Niles, and a few other folks from the high. We're all there and we're all doing it. So I kind of knew about the slam because they would go. Um, and I just popped in there one day and signed up and they made me go first, which was mortifying. Um, <laughs> and I Does just- Does the last name start with a C or why did they make you go first? <laughs> I think it was just like the draw out of a hat or something. You know, sometimes also what they would do is they would just number a sheet of paper like one to 30 and you would just like sign wherever you wanted but like you would sign on like number six but then nobody would sign up above you (laughs) (laughs) dick dick move that backfired you know (laughs) Um, and it didn't go well it wasn't like i it wasn't like i like read my first poem people were like this is it for this kid (laughs) (laughs) he should go to star search (laughs) he should go to star search because this kid's got it like nothing i've ever done has been that way where it's just like oh man he's such a natural like now I, now i try to like bury the process so i can i can like make the illusion that i'm really good at stuff off of jump but like i i'm a ten thousand hours person for sure <laughs> you gotta get it in so something that i that I just noticed by you is just, you just don't stop you're always creating you're always working you're always and i feel like at least in this time that's something that bodes well for, for someone like you, like you have all these projects and now you have this reason to just kind of stay home and stay focused on them. Yeah. It, 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 uh, it helps when you've signed a bunch of contracts that obligate you to do that. (laughs) 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 Some people are like, how are you so motivated during quarantine? I was like, legally I'm motivated. (laughs) I don't, I don't, Fair I don't enough. want to be, I don't want to be working on five scripts at once, but like, it's the only thing that people can still do. So mm-hmm. when productions are slowing down, everyone's like, what about that script you were working on? I'm like, great. So you all want it right now. Right. <laughs> um, so, so there's that, I mean, I, I'm an obsessive creative for sure. I think, you know, sometimes to my own detriment, but I, you know, some people say this thing where they're like, oh, um, you shouldn't be defined by your arts. Um, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I, I think art is a premeditated statement to the world. Like, what a great thing to be defined by. Like, I love authors that are defined by their, their works. I actually would prefer not to be defined by the dumb shit I do impulsively. Like, don't, right. yeah. don't define me by that. Define me by the things that I put thought into. So I think so much of my identity is wrapped up in, like, 
you know, as you grow as a person, then the art you make in that growth becomes a representation of your most current self. And so that becomes this like chasing of like, well, now I feel different than I did a year ago. I need to make something that is a representation of that learning. Um, and so I think that's the constant, that's the constant desire to, to create something new or to articulate something new. It's as we're going through life and learning, like art becomes the, the, the thesis statements that you release into the world. And the rest is kind of a wash. <laughs> mm-hmm. The rest are those photos from junior high that you were like, oh. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't need them. Don't need to re- be remembered by them. <laughs> so um, I wanted to touch on something that I saw, uh, I think, on social media, but um, was pretty serious at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, did you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, but did you have, was it SARS? Like years no. ago? What did <laughs> no, you I have? Had, See, um, I'm making this shit up. <laughs> no, 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 you're not. You're not. You're just give, giving me a different deadly disease. I had swine flu. Right. Swine flu when I was 23. I had swine flu for seven weeks. I had it the first three weeks with the regular swine flu, and then it traveled to my lungs, and I got the lung infection, and then I got swine flu again for another four weeks. Um, which was oh my God. terrible, terrible. Yeah. So when the pandemic started and people weren't taking it seriously and I was like two weeks ahead of everybody, like that, all <laughs> the shit, I had the gas mask, like I was ready to go. Um, and I think it was because I had that before and was like, no, 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 you don't want this. Like you don't, surviving is not always like the, the best bottom line for a thing. It's like, it, it can cause serious, you know, swine flu was like causing serious permanent damage to people's bodies. You know, sometimes because of the lack of oxygen or you slip into a coma, you can lose limbs. Um, like there's, yeah, it was, it felt like death. I don't know if any of the three of you have had, have had a corona yet, but it sounds exactly the same. It yeah. sounds so phenomenally painful. For the people who get the severe case, and like I got the severe case of swamp, it was so brutal. I totally understand how if you're not young and healthy that it kills you. Like, it's mm. just fucking dark. Okay. Um, yeah, you're 23. I was you know, 23. Young, I was like, young, young, yeah, young, young buck and otherwise healthy. So it was fine. But I think when I think about, like, it's kind of why I came down so hard on my parents, right? Mm-hmm. In, the, in the earlier time, you know, the earlier stages were, were cautious, but not as cautious as I would have liked. You know, I was like, in my head, I'm going, you won't survive that. Right. That's nobody in that age bracket can take that on the body. Mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of young people are missing now, right? When they think about like everybody's like going out and shit this week and we're not over mm-hmm. the weekend. You're like, mm-hmm. you don't understand. It's not, ju- it's not like it's just going to like kill somebody older in a heartbeat. You're going to put them through some crazy suffering first and you won't get to be there for that. It's so it's, it's hard because you, you can't call it selfish because it's ignorant. You know, like it's, it's, you can't fault people for not knowing what they don't know. It's just sad that you're like, oh man, like you have to have some personal proximity to pain sometimes in order to have any empathy for it. And we're, we're a massively like apathetic country, unfortunately, just Mm -hmm. in terms of proximity to pain. We're so like secluded. Anyway. Well, let's lift this up. Let's lift this up for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is kind of related, but you're an uncle, right? I am. You're an uncle. That's, you know, my favorite title is is being an aunt. And that's kind of the hardest part of this time right now is they're growing up so fast and, and we're missing it. So can you talk about being an uncle and have you seen her through a window or? (laughs) Not, not through, not through a, a window. My sobrina is very like, she's very off with her mom, with my sister. Um, and really, you know, unfortunately, the last like two and a half, three years of my life have been the most eventful in terms of attention. <laughs> so I've been off and gone and I've missed like so much of her life already. So much of it is, it was digital already, you know? Mm-hmm. And so... And I sort of, I've been able to kind of like deal with that person who's going like, well, if I'm not there every day, she doesn't remember me anyway. Every time I go up there, I have to, we have to sort of reacclimate and like, I have my memory of it and that's most important. Um, but I think what comes out tricky now with kids is their relationships with their grandparents. Like this whole, my, their, my 
uh, you know, my niece's relationship with her, her grandparents, my parents is the thing that's actually suffering. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and everyone's got tricky situations, right? Like we've got a complicated thing where, where, where certain people are around my niece and around my grandparents that like, we can't get the clocks to work for there to be any safe version of them finally getting to come together. Like nobody can quarantine for two or three weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. And then now you've got this whole thread where, um, people can be asymptomatic for so long, you know, that like mm -hmm. even that two week, that two week quarantine thing is only kind of a band aid. It doesn't actually, cause we don't know what else, like how long you could have possibly had it for mm -hmm. or be currently having it with no symptoms. So I think that's the brutality is, is sometimes our lifelines when we're going through shit are, is our family. And that's the people that we're supposed to stay away from right now. Right. On the flip side, my sister is loving this. She just, really? <laughs> she's like, yeah, she's loving it. You know, well, she's a, she's a school teacher, you know, so she mm. won. She's not in class all day. Thank God that's done. You know, she's teaching remotely and she just gets to stay home with her daughter all day. Mm -hmm. my, my sister loves being a mom. I know moms who love their kids, but my sister has talked about being a mom <laughs> forever. She's such a mom. She wants to be 26 to 28 other kids as moms, you oh, know, nine okay. hours a day. Right, like she okay. got classes of kids, you know, that she loves. <laughs> so being home with her daughter is everything. So I, I do try to look at the bright side of like, well, she's really getting this like, crazy quality time with her kid mm -hmm. um when otherwise you know she wouldn't she wouldn't be able to have that um so that's super interesting i, I think the only other problem is that my sister speaks mostly portuguese in the house because her her uh her her my niece's father is from brazil and so now the baby really only speaks portuguese oh, <laughs> isn't hearing isn't hearing isn't hearing spanish or english really at all which is only making it harder for the rest wow. of us. Because, <laughs> you know, I speak a little Spanish. My mom speaks a, a bit more Spanish than my dad's fluent, but we, none of us speak Portuguese. <laughs> you know, we, are, we are not Portuguese. <laughs> not I was going to say, maybe you have time now to learn, but you're writing five different scripts. So yeah. <laughs> Add it to the list. Add it to the yes. list. You'll get to it. I have, I have small qualities I won't change for romantic parts. I'm not gonna learn a language for one day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's what she's talking. <laughs> the baby's got to learn English at some point. It's fine. fine. Or, or at least or Spanish. Spanish, you know? yeah. Spanish I'm hoping by the time she's old enough, like Spanish is another, you know, you know, main language of this country in a, in a, in all official capacities, you know. At that mm. point, we should, we should just be a dual language country. <laughs> Great. Right. Hopefully. Yep. Um, so we haven't even gotten into like, you know, blind spotting, <laughs> bad education. Are you afraid of the dark? But can you, and hip hop in general, but, um, can you talk about that trajectory? And also to talk about blind spotting took you guys nine, nine years? Something like that, yeah. That's a feat, man. It was a while. Yeah. It was a while. I mean, it just, it's really just like it kept almost happening and then dying. And then we like forget about it for two years and then we come back. Um, yeah, I don't even know. I, I think you're really giving me a lot of credit by calling it a trajectory. Okay, <laughs> well, um, your steady climb. <laughs> no, it didn't, didn't feel steady. <laughs> the, the, okay, no, you're... <laughs> I think what it what it actually feels like is more of a like we're and David's this way too, right? This is probably why we get along so well. It's like we have we have multiple areas of interest in the arts and we're not willing to give any of them up. I think we're really just stubborn in that way. We're like we're I think we're of that generation of where everyone kind of goes like if you want to master a thing, you gotta cut everything out and you just gotta master this thing. Otherwise, you know, you're you're just kind of okay at everything. And I just like firmly disagreed from a very young age. Like, I don't think that's true. I think you've set the bar way too hard. I don't think mastery is nearly as far away as you think it is. I mean, really, we're just talking about like making a living, being good at it, you know, like getting, you know, getting fulfillment out of it. And it, it didn't feel like our, my, like my love for music had to be in conflict with my love for theater um, or my love for film or poetry or any of those things. In fact, they all feel really like, highly connected 
And then I had this weird offshoot career for a few years where I was teaching undergrad and I went into marketing for a couple of years on the side and like all, none of that felt particularly disconnected and it all really informed making that movie, right? Of like how we were, how we were gonna package this as a, as a how are we gonna market this to the festivals? How are we gonna make sure that this felt accessible to the, to the Bay Area and, and abroad like that? Those are all marketing questions. Um, and having run like Hudson Jeans Marketing for two years, you know, which is like a $5 million annual budget, like that shit, those mm. muscles that you learn. My, my boss there was a, a Nike executive who ran marketing campaigns for Nike and for Stars. And that company was worth $100 million. And the CEO and I like, the, you know, I reported directly to the CEO, who's a friend of mine. And that was like school, you know? And you start to realize like poetry informs the movie and music informs the soundtrack and marketing informs how you want to tell a story and storytelling informs this, that, and the other and who you can, and the theater informs who you cast, you know, because of the way in which you're going to shoot it. Um, and I think the multidisciplinary way I functioned has always found its way back to itself. Um, I think generally if you follow something that excites you, it pays off. Same reason, like I, when I went to college, I mean, I took night school while I was teaching college, and um, I left the creative writing major because it was bad. It was like all 17th century British lit, and everyone was like, "You're going to be a writer. Take creative writing." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, but I don't want to be a shitty writer. <laughs> I want to be a, I want to be an interesting writer and why is it that every writer I've ever studied would never have done this program <laughs> you know that doesn't make sense and if I'm smart enough to know that <laughs> I'm probably smart enough to not have to take this major so what major is actually going to feed me the most, and I, you know, and then people have been like, don't take psychology, don't take sociology, it's a throwaway major. And I was like, I mean, but is it for a writer though? <laughs> like mm -hmm. observing, pe observing mm -hmm. people, I don't mm -hmm. think that's a throwaway. And I dove into sociology and I just, that shit rocked my world mm -hmm. in, the, in the arts. It was just like, let's talk about people and the, the, the reasons why people behave the way they do. And that is like, that is the nature of the human connection, whether it's what you guys do, whether it's, you know, playwriting, screenwriting, songwriting, all those things are just about connecting with people and anticipating things that will resonate with mass groups of people. And, and that at the time felt so, I got so much flack for that major from, <laughs> from people who were trying to like help my artistic career. And I still am so grateful that I didn't sort of try to track one narrative, but was instead kind of like, well, this is triggering something. And that high, whatever that, whatever's going off in my brain that's, that's piquing my interest is never anything to feel guilty about chasing. Hmm. Um, well, thank you so much for saying that. I mean, I've had, <laughs> I've had many different jobs and mm -hmm. career shifts and um and it's true like you you're you're coming at it with your past experiences but they're all related they're all interconnected and you're interested in it for a reason so why not feed that part of your brain that it that it satisfies for whatever sick yeah. reason you know and then you take and then you take that onto your next role whatever that is so that that's really yeah i love that the thing that i spent a lot of time doing in jumping from career to career was about was using my whatever abilities I have as a writer to contextualize the relationships between them so that people couldn't discredit me from jumping from one to the other. And there was so much power in going like, here's why they're related. I've thought about this. So someone couldn't be like, oh, it's like when you go for a, a job and they're like, well, that was a management position. This is a blah, blah, blah position. You haven't done that. It's like, no, 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 no. You're not gonna argue semantics with me over these two things. This is what I did here. This is what I do here. It's the same muscle. I have five years of experience. That's my job, you know? Mm -hmm. And we do sort of have to advocate for ourselves in terms, especially people who are artistically inclined when we're, because we do, we do have to make up our own curriculum of, of our artistic tra trajectories, right? Mm -hmm. We have to sort of design those in terms of work experience because even the universities don't have the major for the thing you want to do. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't, they don't, they <laughs> right. don't have it for you. And so life becomes your only way to do that. Um, 
Yeah. Right. Especially as an artist, it's not like becoming a doctor. Like you go to med school, you, you join a hospital and then you're a doctor. It's like, okay, you go to school for art and then, and then what, you know, and then it's like, good luck. I remember. Yeah. People are like, oh, I, I have to go be in the, U, the, the USC film school because that's how to become a filmmaker. Like mm -hmm. just run the last 10 directors you love run where they went to school. Betcha they didn't go to that school. Betcha, you know, that they have a really weird path to becoming mm -hmm. who they are. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because they followed some, I always, I always kind of refer to it as like a thinning fog of an idea. Like we kind of look in a direction and go like, there's something over there. There's some like lighthouse blinking over there. And I don't, I can't see what it is, but, but it's calling to it's me. It's calling you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I need, to, I need to go that way. So, yeah, go ahead, Ange. Is this your master class right now? No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, he's smart. Sorry. I forgot you were there, Aaron. Sorry. Yeah, obviously. No, 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 no. It just, just reminded hyper -focused. me. Hyper-focused. No, it just reminded me. Is Aaron the other day uh, texted me. She asked me if I saw Becoming, which was the, you know, the documentary on Michelle Obama that's on Netflix. Yeah. And I have, and that it just reminded me of, she brings up this topic of stats versus stories. Everything mm -hmm. all about stats. Oh, what, what's your degree in? What school did you go to? But really what makes us special, what makes us different and unique are our stories. And we really need to focus more on our stories and, and how important they are and to validate ourselves. And, and, and that's what gives you the confidence to move on and to be your best advocate. Yeah, it's interesting that, that we think of wisdom in terms of stories but we don't think of sort of qualifying for things in terms of them, right? Like hmm. story, story is the way that we weigh like the value of like an elder is the lived experience of all those things, right? And we've really managed to commodify um, this weird sort of arbitrary meritocracy as a way to give value to people. Um, it's an impatient practice, right? It's a practice of, of trying to get a quick version of the answer so you can just quantify somebody based on that listing. But we've all, in any positions we've had of authority, we've all worked with people who have a ton of credi credibility, you know, in quotes, and they, right. and they, dis <laughs> and they disappoint, yep. you know? Mm -hmm. And then people who are, I mean, all of my greatest moments of feeling a sense of accomplishment have come from somebody throwing me into a deep end that I did not qualify for on paper mm -hmm. and being the getting the opportunity to rise to the occasion. And I do think that's, one of my, one of my mentors is Kat Chris Walker, who was, my, uh, who was the artistic director of the program. I was creative director for it at UW-Madison when I was teaching there. And he was 10 years my senior. He was my age now, but I, and I was 23 at the time, so we were about 10 years apart. And he, his central um, philosophical uh, way of sort of teaching was this thing called phenomenology, which sounds like a weird option of Scientology, but it's not. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. It's just... <laughs> We're going cult. cult right um, now. Uh oh, so now it's turned into Scientology. I mean, I'm kind of in. Sorry. <laughs> She's going to give you money for this. There you go. It's like immediately like Rafael Gonzalez is the new Jim Jones of the Bay Area. Yes, have a drink, Ange. Have, have, have a drink. Um, no, but, uh, but it, uh, it's this idea of studying yourself in an experience. It's, and all the ritual really is, is about journaling about yourself while you do it, and then writing journals that are reflections of a series of journals so that you can extract the epiphany and truly hold on to the lesson. So like the, the simplified version of that is like, say we were doing like a, whatever, say you guys wanted to become the best interviewers of all time, even better than you already are, and you're amazing. But let's say you wanted to be incredible. <laughs> and you wanted to be like, the, you, wanted to, you wanted to be the best. Um, and so you wanted to do like, five interviews a day for a month and study yourselves doing it. If you wrote a journal entry about how it went every time for every day and at the end of every week, you had say 25 journal entries and then you had to read all those and summarize what you observed about yourself. And then at the end of that month, take the four, one from each week and summarize about yourself. You'd have this crazy epiphany about who you are as a human and like what your big hurdles are. And I just find that to be like such an interesting way to think about yourself and the way that we like, sort of progress as people. It's like, how often are we taking the stories about ourselves, like giving ourselves time to like look at those and actually learn from them. And so the merits no longer matter. Oh, I graduated, I did this, I worked here, I better, da, da, da. Yeah, but like what epiphany do you have? What, what is the, what's the value that that brings to every waking interaction you have from now till the end, right? 
Mm -hmm. And like, that's the, that's the fun of looking at like people now, like now we're in a business where we hire people. Like that's what I always think about when I talk to new writers. Like, can you write on this TV show? Like I can read your writing sample. I don't really care where the fuck you went to school. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter. Like you, you you can do it or you can't, you understand how people talk or you don't, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, masterclass. That's what you I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this whole episode has been the I, masterclass. <laughs> that's it. I can keep going, but I'm gonna let Erin ask her question. <laughs> so, what are you seeing in terms of you know production and and um, film and the arts in Oakland and the East Bay? Like, are you and David like? Do you guys want to have and maybe Ryan Coogler and Boots? I don't know. Are you guys gonna have like some conglomerate of <laughs> of East Bay, Oakland <laughs> production? Like, where do you see this going? Because I know you talked about it. I don't know if you can still talk about it, but yeah. doing the blind spotting production um, for stars. So, and I'm yeah. guessing you would film in Oakland. So is that something you want to try and do? Yeah. Or As much as we're allowed to film there, you know? I mean, this quarantine thing also just messed up everything. Well, right, California I know. is so difficult. But yeah, I mean, we're in the throes of that show now. We'll see, you know, we'll see what ends up happening. But we've been we've been working on it with some writers for a while. And um, the yeah, I mean, there's this like dream of like just like circling up all of the like all the directors and writers of note and creating some pact. But every time I think about it, I go, well, yeah, well, it, we're just getting going though, and there's probably like another bunch of people that we that should be a part of that. We even talked about if there was a, for a while. I was like, oh, we should set up like a film festival and like show all the movies that have come out in the last ten years to like get excitement going. And then we, you know, and then I would go, well, there already is already there already is an Oakland Film Festival. Like we should just do something with them or make sure that they have access to the film. And, um, I think sometimes, even though I have I have the desire to like be at the forefront of some Bay movement, like sometimes the work is just like I just need to make good work. That, 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 that is exemplary work that people can model off of and then make myself available. Like that's mm. kind of all I need to do. I need to like not cut myself off from the community. I need to show up to community events. Like I am a regular person. Um, <laughs> I, need to, I need to talk to people. I need to like go visit the classrooms of teachers that I know um, and make sure that there's never this sort of, this false notion that success means, means, um, at some point being bigger than the Bay, you know? Which like, I don't, think, I don't think there is a height that that is, but I think sometimes there's a notion that like, when people blow up, they like go off. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we had to come down to LA and go to New York to make a lot of things happen in terms of funding and profile. Mm-hmm. But that's why we say we do it for the Bay. It's like a personal mantra. It's like everything is, we're sending the basket home as much as possible and going like, all right, we're going to try to throw this little event and we're going to, you know, we're going to give this talk and we're going to, you know, any, any kind of small ways that we can start to leverage the tiny, I know sometimes it can feel like there's like a, a significant platform, but it's so fragile and tiny. And now we're trying to like pour some concrete on it and make it something that people, that other people could stand on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah, you know, I think right now we're just trying to, separately and together. I mean, David and I have a bunch of projects together and a bunch of projects separate, but with all of those projects, find a way to um, try and find a sustainable model as artists that isn't based on an anomaly, right? That isn't like pure fucking luck, but is an actual financial model that works. Because it's really easy to bring like a, let's say a super famous person and bring them to a school and have kids like see them and be like, you could be like this person. But like, statistically, you can't. That's, that's, right. an, that's, an, that's an anomaly. Mm-hmm. And so much accidental things had to happen for that person to become who they are. Um, but the film industry is not, um, is not like that. There's so many people working in the film industry and so many people working in the music industry. And now more than ever, there's so many tiers of success I think more of the job is to like demystify the, the trajectory and not make it seem like we pulled the magic trick, but just show mm-hmm. the work mm-hmm. and show the patients needed and, and just kind of like leave the curtain open as much as possible. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love that. And I asked that only because I remember when the Wayans brothers were trying yeah. to open that production facility in Alameda, mm -hmm. I think. And yeah. then that just totally fell flat. So it's like, ah, oh, I was looking forward to that, but I didn't know if maybe there's a new generation of folks that are thinking along those yeah. lines at all. The, the, and it doesn't have to be a huge production facility. No, the city but, needs to make that decision though. You know, like the city needs to decide what its tax incentives are gonna be for shoots. Um, and, and the counties need to decide. And then I think what we can do is bring a lot of, try to bring work to the Bay Area, which is mm -hmm. an incentive for them to make tax incentives for us to continue to do that and employ people. And I think once the city changes its tax breaks, so the state starts to change its tax breaks for the Bay Area, then there's a good reason for there to be a studio there because mm -hmm. work can be, can be churned out. But right now, like the Bay Area has nothing on Virginia where right. the tax breaks are, you know, the state will just give you buildings. You know, they'll let you shoot for free on state mm -hmm. property. And like, we can't compete with that. Um, well, so maybe think, after the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> maybe want, there's maybe a lot of empty buildings right now. <laughs> maybe they don't want that now. Yeah, yeah. maybe it's the time. But no, I also don't I, want Bay Area people to like think they have to only tell Bay Area stories. You know, like I'm also fine with Bay Area writers being like, yeah, I'm gonna get out there, I'm gonna tell this Louisiana story, great. You know, like we don't only have to be sort of self-obsessed as a, as a counterweight to feeling underrepresented. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm good with people just going out and telling whatever story. And if it happens to be about the Bay, great. Like that's sort of like a double word score because mm -hmm. we get to have the fun of seeing ourselves. Mm -hmm. But also like I, I just see myself in the writer or the filmmaker or the musician in general. Um, and that's kind, of, that's kind of enough. They don't necessarily need the burden of like, all right, now that you grew up in San Leandro, where's your San Leandro TV show? Like, y'all don't want to go, maybe, you, maybe they don't want to go back to it. Did he know that you're planning that, Aaron? Wow. No. I, I, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break from the heart of Bayfair. No, I think, I think that's such a good point because still we're, we're coming from- you don't from... fuck with Bayfair. No, I, I didn't, but yeah, yeah. It's true though, because whatever we're working on, we bring ourselves into it, whether we like it or not. So it's still a Bay story. Any story you're Always. telling has Bay Ridge. Any story. So, uh, Nigella, who did uh, the movie Gin, like Gin is the most Bay movie ever, and it's definitely shot in LA, but she wrote and directed it. Like, you can feel her politics and her life experiences flowing through that thing, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. to, to end this episode, do you want to lift up any nonprofits or folks during the pandemic and, and give them a shout out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I always want to prop up. Uh, yeah, I did a, I did a thing with Youth Radio, our oh, YR yeah. Media now, so yeah, I'll prop yeah. them up. Prop Youth Speaks Up. Um, just a general shout out to all Bay Area regional theaters that are having a really, really hard time right now. Like, please, if you can, support, support, support. Buy their season tickets for next year because those spaces are expensive and they already barely get by. Um, so just the arts, please. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I got. Oh, Rafael Casal, thank you so much. Thank for you. That was awesome. Yeah, was thanks great. for letting me rant. <laughs> Are you kidding? I'm, I'm coming out of this feeling good about myself. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm going to start journaling. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait to write my journal right now. Yeah, just as, sh as short as you want. Just like, here's what I thought today. Boom, boom, boom. It's really, mm -hmm. it's good. I'll do it anytime I lose my center. If I lose it, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do a week of this to see how it goes. Mm. All right. Well, I love out. that. Wait, awesome. we have a new project. Thank you. All right. <laughs> all right, y'all. Thanks for having Take me. Care. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank Bye. you, Rafa. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Later. That was our uh, masterclass conversation with <laughs> Sir Rafael Casal from uh, Berkeley, California. Um, United. He should be knighted. Yeah, I mean, what a delight, really. And another, I'm sorry, we had this twice now with David and then with Raphael. We're drinking and they're like, are you guys drinking? I'm going to get a drink. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah we, had, we had flashbacks like, do you not listen? We are drinking. <laughs> How else do we get through this? You know, not always, yeah. but for the most part. Yeah. A little happy hour. Why yeah. not? Yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I love both of them, and I, I just really appreciate them. And that's all I'm going to say about this interview, because it was long, but it was really fun and informative, and um, 
struck a nerve with Ange for sure. So, <laughs> well, they they both did, but I think, um, and and hopefully you've lit you've now listened to both interviews. It's really easy to see how they complement each other. Um, and they're uh, just both so generous with their time, you know. Like they were, yeah. just, they were just here to to hang and shoot the shit and have and have, drink. Uh, and have David uh, delights with us. No delight. Digs or yeah, the digs. Digs delight. Yeah, get mm-hmm. it. Get oh, it right. I'm not even drinking it. Get it right. Digs Sorry. delight. Yep. It's all about that. Oh, digs that's the delight. Whole, yeah, that's the whole. Uh, <laughs> well, and I get it right. Digs delight. You no, know, we're gonna have him on again. But I really wanted to talk to him about his dog Mia. Mia. <clears throat> He posted totally videos forgot. about Mia. I know. And she has I her on Instagram, to, by the way. But, you know, oh. Yeah, duh. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, cheers to Rafa and cheers to dogs getting us through this. Oh. Or any pets, <laughs> any pets that you have that are helping you get through this time. Yeah, I agree. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I love these guys. I think they're bitch talk bitches forever, so. Mm-hmm. I will coin that. So um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we know our interviews are going a little longer, but this is the pandemic and apparently people just want to talk and I appreciate that. And the other side of this is they don't have a publicist. They're rapping. <laughs> yeah, you notice the rap sign. <laughs> yeah. What do you want? Do you want the 10 minute interviews or do you want the 35, 40 minute interviews? Although I did I, that one time. Remember <laughs> someone came on the call and was like, that's a, that's enough. Remember Char? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was uh where'd you get the hook on? Uh, uh, and Limber was not there. Yeah. Um, thanks again to Raphael Cazal. Thank you for your time. And um, now we just those two on again to do basic bitch um <laughs> you can find us at, um, every week every week we'll have once a week this our is, weekly thing this is their new project <laughs> 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 little did they know what they got themselves into when they said yes um but it, in the meantime you can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com it's a brand spanking new website and we really want you to sign up for our email so you can do that as soon as you arrive to the landing page And also check out our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes footage. Don't forget to subscribe. It's also brand spanking new. You can also find us at BFF.FM. Every Monday morning from 6 to 6.30. We are powered by GoTo Productions. Bitch, please. (laughs) 